Chapter Fifty Three of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Dread, Chapter Fifty Three, The Burial. The death of Dread fell like a night of despair on the hearts of the little fugitive circle in the swamps, on the hearts of multitudes in the surrounding plantations, who had regarded him as a prophet and a deliverer. He in whom they trusted was dead. The splendid athletic form, so full of wild vitality, the powerful arm, the trained and keen-seeing eye, all struck down at once. The grand and solemn voice hushed, and all the splendid poetry of olden time, the inspiring symbols and prophetic dreams which had so wrought upon his own soul, and with which he had wrought upon the souls of others, seemed to pass away with him, and to recede into the distance and become unsubstantial, like the remembered sounds of mighty winds or solemn visions of evening clouds in times long departed. On that night, when the woods had ceased to reverberate the brutal sounds of baying dogs and the more brutal profanity of drunken men, when the leaves stood still on the trees, and the forest lay piled up in the darkness like black clouds, and the morning star was standing like a calm, angelic presence above them, there might have been heard in the little clearing a muffled sound of footsteps, treading heavily and voices of those that wept with a repressed and quiet weeping, as they bore the wild chieftain to his grave beneath the blasted tree. Of the undaunted circle, who had met there at the same hour many evenings before, some had dared to be present tonight, for hearing the report of the hunt, they had left their huts on the plantations by stealth when all were asleep and eluding the vigilance of the patrols, the night watch, which commonly guards plantations, had come to the forest to learn the fate of their friends, and bitter was the dismay and anguish which filled their souls when they learned the result. It is melancholy to reflect that among the children of one father an event which excites in one class bitterness and lamentation should in another be cause of exultation and triumph. But the world has been thousands of years, and not yet learned the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. And not until all tribes and nations have learned these will his kingdom come, and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Among those who stood around the grave, none seemed more bowed down and despairing than one whom we have before introduced to the reader under the name of Hannibal. He was a tall and splendidly formed negro, whose large head, high forehead, and marked features indicated resolution and intellectual ability. He had been all his life held as the property of an uneducated man of very mean and parsimonious character, who was singularly divided in his treatment of him by a desire to make the most of his energies and capabilities as a slave, 
and a fear lest they should develop so fast as to render him unfit for the condition of slavery. Hannibal had taught himself to read and write, but the secret of the acquisition was guarded in his own bosom, as vigilantly as the traveller among thieves would conceal in his breast an inestimable diamond. For he well knew that were these acquisitions discovered, his master's fears would be so excited as to lead him to realize at once a present sum upon him, by selling him to the more hopeless prison-house of the far south, thus separating him from his wife and family. Hannibal was generally employed as the keeper of the ferry-boat by his master, and during the hours when he was waiting for passengers found many opportunities for gratifying in an imperfect manner, his thirst for knowledge. Those who have always had books about them, more than they could or would read, know nothing of the passionate eagerness with which a repressed and starved intellect devours in secret its stolen food. In a little chink between the logs of his ferry house there was secreted a Bible, a copy of Robinson Crusoe, and an odd number of a northern newspaper which had been dropped from the pocket of a passenger and when the door was shut and barred at night and his bit of pine not lighted he would take these out and read them hour by hour there he yearned after the wild freedom of the desolate island he placed his wife and children in imagination in the little barricaded abode of robinson he hunted and made coats of skin, and gathered strange fruits from trees with unknown names, and felt himself a free man. Over a soul so strong and so repressed, it is not to be wondered at that dread should have acquired a peculiar power. The study of the Bible had awakened in his mind that vague tumult of aspirations and hopes, which it ever excites in the human breast. And he was prompt to believe that the Lord who visited Israel in Egypt had listened to the sighings of their captivity and sent a prophet and a deliverer to his people. Like a torch carried in a stormy night, this hope had blazed up within him, but the cold blast of death had whistled by and it was extinguished forever. Among the small band that stood around the dead on the edge of the grave, he stood, looking fixedly on the face of the departed. In the quaint and shaggy mound to which dread had attached that strange, rugged oriental appellation, Jegger Sehatitha, or the Heap of Witness, there was wildly flaring a huge pine-knot torch, whose light fell with a red distinct glare on the prostrate form that lay there like a kingly cedar, uprooted, no more to wave its branches in air, yet mighty in its fall, with all the shaggy majesty of its branches around. Whatever might have been the strife and struggle of the soul once imprisoned in that form, there was stamped upon the sombre face an expression of majestic and mournful tranquility, as if that long-suffering and gracious God, to whose judgment he had made his last appeal, had rendered that judgment in mercy. When the statesmen and mighty men of our race die, though they had the weaknesses and sins of humanity, 
they want not orators in the church to draw the veil gently to speak softly of their errors and loudly of their good and to predict for them if not an abundant entrance yet at least a safe asylum among the blessed and something not to be rebuked in our common nature inclines to join in a hopeful amen it is not easy for us to believe that a great and powerful soul can be lost to god and itself for ever but he who lies here so still and mournfully in this flickering torchlight had struggling within him the energies which make the patriot and the prophet crushed beneath a mountain of ignorance they rose blind and distorted yet had knowledge enlightened and success crowned them his name might have been with that of toussaint celebrated in mournful sonnet by the deepest thinking poet of the age thou hast left behind powers that will work for thee air earth and skies there's not a breathing of the common wind that will forget thee thou hast great allies thy friends are exultations agonies and love and man's unconquerable mind the weight of so great an affliction seemed to have repressed the usual vivacity with which the negro is wont to indulge the expression of grief when the body was laid down by the side of the grave there was for a time a silence so deep that the rustling of the leaves and the wild doleful clamor of the frogs and turtles in the swamps and the surge of the winds in the pine treetops were all that met the ear even the wife of the dead stood with her shawl wrapped tightly about her rocking to and fro as if in the extremity of grief an old man in the company who had officiated sometimes as preacher among the negroes began to sing a well-known hymn very commonly used at negro funerals possibly because its wild and gloomy imagery has something exciting to their quick imaginations the words rose on the night air hark from the tombs a doleful sound my ears attend the cry ye living men come view the ground where you must shortly lie during the singing of this verse hannibal stood silent with his arms gloomily folded his eyes fixed on the lifeless face gradually the sentiment seemed to inspire his soul with a kind of serene triumph he lifted his head and joined his deep bass voice in the singing of the second verse princess this clay must be your bed in spite of all your towers the tall the wise the reverend head must lie as low as ours yes he said brethren that will be the way of it they triumph and lord it over us now but their pomp will be brought down to the grave and the noise of their vials the worm shall be spread under them and the worm shall cover them and when we come to stand together 
at the judgment seat our testimony will be took there if it never was afore and the lord will judge atween us and our oppressors that's one comfort now brethren let's just lay him in the grave and he that's a better man or would have done better in his place let him judge him if he dares they lifted him up and laid him into the grave and in a few moments all the mortal signs by which that soul had been known on earth had vanished to appear no more till the great day of judgment and decision end of chapter 53 recording by john brandon